0: Lord, and that as we've gone through the day up to this point, Lord, that we've done many things out of the strength that You've given us. And God, we thank You for that. Lord, we thank You for the grace of the Gospel which has drawn us here tonight. God, we ask that tonight as as we worship together and we look at Your Word together, that You would remind us of the grace that we have experienced in Christ. Lord, of the salvation that we have in His name. Lord, that Your Spirit, God, would draw us close to You. God, would draw us into Your presence, God. And we would leave here tonight knowing that we've experienced You, that we've met with You, that our hearts have been changed by You, and that our lives and the way we live has been challenged by Your Word we thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our community and in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, tonight, like we did a couple weeks ago, we're going to do the sermon first, and I hope that as we go through that that will begin to make sense why we're doing that. It's amazing to me how many things that people think are in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. They go around, they, they say these things, this is in the Bible, that's in the Bible, God says this, the Bible says that. Or lots of times, since you know, I teach Bible at middle school and I have seminary degrees, people will come up to me and they'll say, is this in the Bible? Or, or where is this found in the Bible? For example... The phrase, moderation in all things. <laughs> moderation in all things. Great phrase. The Bible certainly teaches moderation in some things. But the phrase, moderation in all things, isn't found in the Bible. It's not from the Bible. It's from the philosophy of Aristotle. So we certainly don't agree with that. You know, we, we don't want salvation in moderation. We want it all. people also say that God helps those who help themselves. We've we've studied that a bit here. We've seen that about Jesus saying that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that God doesn't really help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. That's what the gospel is. The phrase actually comes from Aesop's Fables, these stories which were written a long time ago. And originally it was the God's help those who help themselves. So, certainly something we don't agree with. I'm very thankful that this next phrase isn't in the Bible, because I'm a bit of a slob. And I would be very distraught if cleanliness actually was next to godliness. (laughs) But it's not. You know, sorry to disappoint moms on Mother's Day, but that is not in the Bible. If you've ever been to a Christian bookstore and seen all the nice little cute paintings they have, you may have seen one of a lion and a lamb laying down together. And people will often say that, that one day the lion shall lay down with the lamb. But that's not in the Bible. In in every passage that talks about the new creation, that talks about those kinds of things happening, it's a wolf that lies down with the lamb. And the lion's usually paired up with a, with an ox or a cow. But I guess that didn't make for that nice of a painting. A lot of times when we hear the story of of Paul's conversion, when when Saul became Paul in the book of Acts, people will say that he was knocked off his horse, that God knocked him off his horse, and then he was converted. But if you read when Luke tells the story, or the two times when Paul tells the story, there's no horse. There's never a horse. he, He may have been on a horse. He could have also just been walking and got knocked down. Just the other day I had a middle school student come up to me and he said, isn't it true that on the cross, when, when the thief on the cross mocked Jesus, that a bird swooped down and pecked out his eye? <laughs> not true. It's from the movie The Passion of the Christ. That's where it happens. But it doesn't happen in the Bible. At Christmas we saw that there may not have actually been three wise men that. It comes from the song, We Three Kings, and we don't really know how many they were or if there were kings. We just know there was more than one. That's why there's wise men, not a wise man. The seven deadly sins. You know, makes for an interesting movie plot. But it's not actually in the Bible. The the Bible doesn't give us a list of, of seven sins that are supposedly worse than all the others. But all the time, all the time, people attribute things like these and, and other things to the Bible. They say, God says this. The Bible says this, and so you need to do it. Moderation in all things. God helps those who help themselves, they say. And misunderstandings and misinterpretations and, and these outright creations of our imagination get thrown around as if they have the authority of God. And in this way, In this way, our day today, tonight, it's not much different than how it was in Jesus' day. You see, in Jesus' day, there were groups like the scribes and Pharisees who who went around and they said, this is the right interpretation of the law. If If you do everything we tell you to do, if you keep everything we say, then you'll be keeping the law of God. That's what they said. And so, they thought, they thought that because they were doing these things, that the scribes and Pharisees told them to do, that they were doing what God said. They they kept the law in even some some very small and tiny ways that would just seem insignificant to us. They were focused on that. That was important to them. But as they did that, as they focused on those things, they missed the bigger picture of the law. They, They missed what the law was written for. We saw that last week. We saw that Christ said, when He came, He said that I am the fulfillment of the law. He says, I'm the one that the law was pointing to. The law was pointing to Christ. That's why it was written. That's why it existed. That's why they had to keep it. And because he came, because he, because he was there talking to them about the law, we saw that since he had come, since the one that the law was pointing to had arrived, that its purpose and its and its function had changed. Last week in Matthew 15, or Matthew 5, 17 through 20, we saw that the law is still valid for us as Christians. That it still does apply to us. But, because of who Jesus is, because of who he is as its fulfillment, we have to understand it now in light of Christ's teaching about it. And so, for the next six weeks, we're going to be in in these passages that close out the fifth chapter of Matthew. And this is where Jesus gives us the practical application of everything he said last week. Everything he said about about who he is and how he relates to the law, all of that is going to be fleshed out in the rest of chapter 5. He's going to talk about these different situations and these different laws, and he's going to tell us how that applies to us. In each of these cases, he's going to say something like, you've heard it said. Other people have said this about the law. Other people have said this about God. And he says, but I say to you. And, And his point is that he's here now. And we need to listen to him. So let's read our text, and then we'll, we'll look at the details of it. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of the rows. And tonight's passage will be found in those Bibles on page 810. We're in the fifth chapter of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and we're going to be reading verses 21 through 26. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. The main point of our text tonight, the main point of this passage, is that God is after the heart. God is after the heart, and anger is, represents, anger demonstrates that we have a heart, a sinful heart, that is guilty of murder. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is pretty simple here. This is is nothing surprising to us. Murder is against the rules in the Old Testament. It's bad. This is the sixth commandment. Exodus 20:13, where the Ten Commandments are found, says the sixth commandment says, "You shall not murder." We know what that means. We understand it. And as early, you know, you don't have to read the Old Testament very much. You just pick it up, and you get a few pages in. You get to Genesis chapter four, where Cain kills Abel, and God comes to Cain, and Cain's, and, and God says, essentially, "Murder's bad. You're not supposed to do it. You shall not murder." And Cain gets punished for what he's done. He gets condemned by God because God doesn't like murder. We know that. So the people in Jesus' day rightly have heard that it was said, don't murder. If you murder, you're going to be held accountable for it. It's not, not that hard to understand. But then, just like Jesus is going to do in the next six passages, the five passages after this and this one, he says, but I'm going to tell you something different. I'm going to tell you something more. Let's read verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The way he says, I say to you, it's it's the most emphatic way he can say it. He's literally saying something like, I myself, me, the person who's standing here before you, I'm the one that's saying this. And you need to listen to me. That's what he's saying. He wants it to be clear that these are his words, his teaching. And he sets them up alongside the Old Testament law and says, they're just as important. You've heard this said, rightly, but I'm saying to you this. And then we know what he says. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother everybody who insults his brother, everybody who says, you fool. So the question for us is, is, what does he mean by brother? Does he just mean the, the person that is the biological product of our parents, just like we are? So, it's okay for me to be angry with everyone else. It's okay for me to call other people fools. It's okay for me to insult other people, as long as I don't do it to my sister or brother. Anything other than that, is, is fine. Well, if we've, if, if we've spent any time in the New Testament, we know that, that brother or sister is also used to talk about fellow believers in Christ. So I would say that if you are here tonight and you have a relationship with Christ, that you are my brother or sister in Christ. And that's the way the, the word is used the vast majority of the time in Matthew. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about fellow disciples, fellow believers. So the question then is, does that mean that I can call anybody a fool except people that are fellow Christians? I can be angry with anybody as long as they're not a Christian. So the next time a telemarketer calls me, I'm going to say, are you a Christian? And if they say no, I'm going to get angry. Because it's fine. Well, you know, I think that Jesus' focus here is on the relationships between us as fellow believers. But, we're going to get to verses 43 through 48 at the end of chapter 5. And this is where Jesus just kind of blows the doors wide open on interpersonal relationships. And he says, it's it's not enough just to love those people that love you. It's not enough just to be nice to the people that are nice to you. You have to love your enemies. You have to pray for those people who will persecute you. So I don't think it'd be fair for us to restrict this to say that we just need to not get angry with fellow believers. Because, Jesus represents himself here in this passage, in this sermon, as somebody who cares about how we relate to everyone, whether we know them or not. So he says, everybody who's angry, they're liable to judgment. Everybody who insults someone else, they're liable to the council, the the council of judgment. And everybody that says, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. So we have three different offenses here and three different punishments. You do this, you get this. But we shouldn't see, I don't think, uh, a different degree of crimes, a different degree of offenses. As if, you know, it's okay if you insult people, but if you call them a fool, you're going to hell. We we shouldn't see the text this way. What Jesus is saying is that all of these offenses are bad, and all of them will get judgment. And if you notice, notice, He's, he's stressing the fact that we're guilty of anger. We'll, we're guilty of anger whether we express it or not. It doesn't matter if we say, you fool. It doesn't matter if we insult somebody. It doesn't matter if we murder somebody. What matters is whether we are angry with someone. God cares about the heart. He cares about the inward condition that's expressed in the outward action. We don't usually think about it this way, do we? We don't, we don't hold ourselves accountable to the standard that Jesus holds us accountable to. You see, we think it's good. We think that we're doing well if we don't express our anger outwardly. We may even pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, self. Well, way to exercise self-control and not get mad at that person outwardly, even though you were thinking it in your heart. Even though you really felt that way, you didn't show it to them, so you did a good thing. It's a good thing if I, if I don't visibly get upset at people at stoplights. Moms and dads, you may think that it's a good thing if you don't voice your anger at your kids. Husbands and wives, you may think that it's a good thing if you don't lash out at your spouse in anger. We think that it's a good thing if we don't get outwardly and visibly angry with someone even if we are inside. And practically, you know, practically it does seem to be a good thing. We, we, we don't want to lash out at people, obviously. We don't want to lash out at our spouse or our kids or our friends or our coworkers. But theologically, I don't think it's any different. Whether it's expressed or not, it doesn't matter. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why we think it's a good thing. We think it's a good thing if we don't outwardly express our anger, even if we're angry internally. We think that's a good thing because we are prideful, self-worshipping idolaters. Let me say that again. We think it's a good thing because we are prideful, self-worshipping idolaters. You see, it's because it's because I care more. We care more about what our spouse thinks, or our kids thinks, or our parents, or our friends, or our coworkers, or even complete strangers. We care more about what they think, what they think of us, how they view us, and we care about honoring God. Their opinion of us is more important than God's opinion of us. And Christ says, He says, that's not good enough. He says, whether it's expressed or not, whether anger comes out of us or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if our spouse sees it. It doesn't matter if our kids see it. What matters is the fact that God always sees it, and God is always upset with us. The only reason, the only reason it seems better to us to not express our anger, is because we care more about what they think. We care more about our own self-image and what we think about anger than we care about what God says about it in His Word, how God sees us. So what do we do about it? How do we respond to that situation? Well, thankfully... In this text, Jesus gives us two examples. Two two examples of ways we can practically apply what he's saying. In verses 23 and 24, he says this. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is that if, if you're about to put yourself in a position to be in God's presence, if you're about to worship God, before you do that, before you take those steps, you need to make sure that your heart is right with other people. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus puts the focus on how others view us. Because we don't do it this way. A lot of times I'll think, well, you know, I don't know if that guy has a problem with me. I don't have a problem with him. And if, and if he has a problem with me, that's, that's his problem. If he wants to fix it, he can come to me. But Jesus says, he says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, we need to be concerned about that. We need to be the ones who work to reconcile it. When we talked about the Beatitudes, we saw that there Jesus calls us to actively pursue peace with everyone. And Paul says in Romans a similar thing. He says, as far as it depends on us, As far as it depends on us, we need to live at peace with all men. We need to be at peace with everyone. And so the responsibility isn't on them to come seek us out. The responsibility is on us as believers to pursue the peace with them. I think that what Jesus is doing here is He's implying to us that pursuing peace, that reconciling with other people helps us to enter into worship rightly with God. You see, if I... Do the work to, to fix a relationship with a, with a fellow human being. If I focus on that, if I, if I strive for peace in that situation, that prepares my heart and my mind to enter into worship rightly with God. And that's a good thing. We, we obviously we want that to happen. And that's why he tells us. He says, he says, "Get up and go." He says, "If you are about to enter into worship, with God and you remember that there is a problem that you need to fix don't just stay there and keep doing what you're doing he says get up and go stand up, leave, leave your gift at the altar fix the relationship and then come back and, fix, and, and worship God See, because if we don't if we, if we don't do that if, if we dismiss that, that, remem- that remembering in our mind and we just press on into worship with God and try to ignore it we're just worshiping God hypocritically we're doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did, where they where they sought to please him outwardly, but didn't care at all about the inward condition of their heart, because God knows He knows that we haven't reconciled with that person, and so our worship isn't going to be honoring to Him. It's going to be disgusting to Him. So we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves who have I wronged this week? Who is there in my life that could have something against me that I need to go to and I need to seek out and I need to fix? We need to ask ourselves if there are relationships that we need to make right before we worship God. Now obviously, you know, this isn't something we should just do on Sundays. This isn't something we should just do before we play worship music in the car. This is something we should be doing consistently and constantly, all the time. We should be making sure that we're relating rightly to other people. But Jesus is saying that we especially need to do that before we come to worship God. Before we put ourselves in His presence, we need to make sure that our heart is right with other people and that their hearts are right towards us, as far as we can affect that. And if it's not, we need to call them. We need to to go to them. We need to do whatever we can do to fix those relationships before we come before God's presence to worship Him. And these people may not even know. You may walk up to somebody and say, man, I have this against you. And they may have no clue. See, that's because Jesus cares about even unexpressed anger. Even if you haven't told them, even if you haven't voiced those things, you still need to talk to them and work through that. Because Jesus cares about the heart. The second example comes in the next two verses, in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says this. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What Jesus is talking about here is this... Prison called debtor's prison. In the ancient world, if you owed somebody a lot of money, or even a little money, and you just couldn't pay them back. You know, they didn't have credit reports and collection agencies and all that stuff. What they would do is they would try to get money from you, and if they couldn't, they would they would take you to court. They would take you to the court, and the judge would, would figure out whether you could pay them or not, and if you couldn't pay them, the judge would hand you over to a guard and the guard would take you and put you in, in the prison for those in debt. And then you're there. You're there until the debt is repaid. See, but the problem with that is that it's not like today. You know, it's not like they could, they could make some license plates in prison and, and pay off their debt on their own. They couldn't do that. They were, they were stuck there in debt without any way to repay it. The only option they had is if somebody cared enough about them on the outside to come and pay the debt so they could go free. Otherwise, they're stuck there. And Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us, he's saying, don't let it get that far. If you've got a problem with somebody else, don't make them take you to the the last resort to fix it. He's saying, we need to be the ones who act. We need to be the agents of reconciliation. We need to be those who who seek them out, who go to them and try to fix it, Try try to restore the relationship before they have to do something drastic. In our passage tonight, what Jesus is saying to us is that anger, anger is the heart condition that lies behind murder. And that it's not enough. It's not enough for us just to, to not kill anyone. It's not enough for us just to control our actions so we don't insult anybody, so we don't lash out. He says that whether we bottle it all up, whether we call somebody a fool, whether we call them something else, whether we scream and yell at them, or whether we we take the most drastic step and kill them. We're guilty of anger. Whether it's expressed in in the worst possible way it could be expressed, or whether it's not expressed at all. He says that we, as followers of Christ, we as believers need to be free from anger, no matter what kind it is. And that when anger does come into our lives, when anger does come into our heart, we need to be the ones who urgently seek reconciliation. We especially need to do that before we come before God to worship Him. But think about this. Jesus here takes takes all this time. As He's talking to these people, He takes a lot of energy. A lot, of, a lot of space on the page, and he talks to them about reconciling with other people, about how important it is for us to reconcile with, with one another as believers in Christ, reconcile with, with those who aren't believers in Christ, about how important this, this horizontal relationship is for us, between us and other men and women. So if that's that important, if, if he spends that much time talking about that, how much more important is it for us to be reconciled to God? You see, we saw earlier that, that Jesus says that it doesn't matter the, the anger, whether it's expressed or not. We're, we're still guilty. We're still liable to judgment. But the question is, who's going to judge that? You, know, you, you can't know if, if I'm angry in here. I can't know if you are. I, I have no way of seeing that. I have no way of, of measuring that or proving that. Obviously he, he's talking about God. God sees it, God judges it, God condemns it. Now think again about that image of, of the debtor's prison. You see, we on our own, we, we rack up this debt of, of sin and, and guilt and pride. And it's it's so significant. No matter, no matter who we are, no matter how we've lived, it's so significant that we can never, ever, ever hope to repay it. We can't. We can't get out from underneath the judgment that we deserve, no matter how hard we try on our own. Through sin, like, like anger, or the, or the pride that, that lies behind it, we get ourselves to a place where the only thing we deserve from God is His judgment and His condemnation. And there's nothing we can do about it. We're liable to judgment. We're liable to the counsel of judgment. We're liable to the hell of fire. And there's nothing we can do. We're shackled up in a prison of our own sin. And our only hope to get out of it is if somebody who, who has the means and who's willing will come and pay our debt for us. Somebody on the outside. Somebody who's not stuck in there with us. But the problem is that everybody's stuck in there with us. Everybody we know. We can't rely on our wife. We can't rely on our kids. We can't rely on our parents. We can't rely on our friends or our coworkers or, or anyone. Because they're all in the same boat we are. They're all in the same prison of our own making like we are. That's why Christ. That's why Christ, who was hundred percent God and hundred percent man, came into the world. He came to be the person on the outside of the prison to pay the debt that was owed by the people on the inside of the prison. He came to be the penalty to, to pay the penalty that we owed. He came to, to bear the judgment, the counsel of judgment, the, the hell of fire that we were owed for us. He purchased our freedom. He purchased for us reconciliation with God, reconciliation with the judge who held us accountable. And because of that, because of that, we can go free. Because of that, we can exit the prison. And we can be free from, from sin like anger. We can have hearts that, are, that aren't angry with other people. Because of the grace we have in the gospel. And His words tonight, His words in this text urge us. They urge us to seek that reconciliation with other people. If we've wronged them or they've wronged us, they urge us to seek them out and fix it. And they urge us to seek reconciliation with God. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not in a place where you'd say that you, that you are reconciled with God. You don't understand what it means to, to have the blood of Jesus pay for your sins. You don't... Understand what it means to have His righteousness imparted to you so that you are free from the penalty that that God pays to those who don't. And Jesus is urging us to to not wait. To seek that person out. To seek God out before it's too late. The The reason why we're doing this sermon right now is because I didn't want to teach this text uh, after we had already worshipped God. I didn't want to teach these things and give these warnings that Christ gives us without giving us the opportunity to, to repent together. Without giving us the opportunity to confess these things together. See, maybe some of you are here tonight and you're saying, you're, you're thinking about people that you need to fix the relationship with. This whole week as I was studying this passage, things came into my mind I thought, I probably need to call them. I probably need to seek them out and fix it. And so I don't want, to want us to together enter into worship with God without doing that together. This is the, the most practical way we can apply this text tonight is by doing it. And so we're going to take some time. Uh, I don't really know how long. I don't know what this is going to look like. You know, maybe, maybe some of you need to seek somebody else out in this room. Maybe some of you need to go outside and make a phone call. Maybe some of you need to leave altogether and go find somebody and fix something. So, I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, take a few minutes, and then after that time, the band will come, and, and we will worship God together with hearts that are right with Him and right with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son into the world. That He left heaven behind to come here. And that He spoke these real words to real people. And that through Your Word they speak to us. God, we ask that You would send Your Spirit into this place, into this room to drive home the truth that's there. God, that we would be reconciled to those that we need to be reconciled with. That we would be reconciled to You, God. That that You would convict us of things we need to be convicted of. That You would remind us of things that we need to be reminded of so that we can enter before You rightly in worship. God, so that we can worship you without hypocrisy. We thank you for Christ, for in His blood which purchases our freedom, for His life, death, and resurrection which earns the grace that we have and you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to play some music. Take some time to, to consider your hearts before God uh, with one another. I mean, if you, if you need to do something, don't don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Just, just get up and do it. And uh, after a little bit of time, I'll come up and pray again.